The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Here's a quick recap on our previous episode around principles of motor learning. Pete and I talked about this complex topic and why clinicians often struggle to implement these principles in a rehab practice. We dove deep into motor learning principles, including interesting and meaningful tasks for survivors to engage in, the different types of practice, and transferring skill. We also discussed enriched environments and got into a little bit of the importance for socialization as it relates to movement. If you haven't listened already, give that one a listen and see how that changes either your practice or your recovery. What we all want at the end of the day is better quality, fluid, coordinated movement. But sometimes we don't get there. And I would suggest to therapists, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. We're not trying to make them perfect. We're just trying to get them better. And better is good. So sometimes the beauty is not in the beauty, but in the ugliness of the movement. Let it be ugly, let it be sweaty. Look, if you don't think that this has value, here's what you need to do. Go to a music store and get yourself a viola. And let me know how that doesn't sound like a dozen dying cats for the next six months, because it's gonna. Take up golf, it's gonna be. It's not supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be ugly. You gotta enjoy this stuff. Are we ready? I think so. I think so are too. You? Yeah. Hey, Deb Batistel, how are you? Hey, Pete Levine, I'm great. How are you? Good. What are we talking about today? We are talking about repetitive practice. Wow. Are you excited about this? <laughs> so yeah, repetitive practice, it's part of the trifecta of the brain rules because I've always tried to synthesize the brain down to three rules. Repetitive, that's the most important one challenging we talked about that in the last podcast and meaningful we talked about that in the last podcast this is the linchpin on which everything else rests the the repetitive practice part of things 
I'd be glad to start if that's okay. That'd be great. Thank you. All right. So as I mentioned in the last podcast, we are what we repeatedly do. The great Aristotle speaking to us from 2,400 years ago, and he understood that there was an essential change when you do something repetitively. The whole thing about repetitive practice is you got to be careful about what you repeatedly think and what you repeatedly do. We know the physical bad habits of somebody maybe who, you know, sits in their chair badly and what effect that has. But what about those thoughts that you have that are repetitive? I think you were talking last podcast about how you have all kinds of crazy ideas that float around in your head sometimes. And we all have that. And I think mm-hmm. we all assume that other people don't. But guess what we do? I heard this lady on NPR not too long ago. And she said, if they could ever follow my thoughts for one 24-hour period, I'd be in an insane asylum by the next day. We have about 70,000 thoughts per day. So you know, not only is neuroplasticity learning and it's driven by repetitive practice, but it, the the flip side, the double-edged sword is that it is learning and it's driven by repetitive practice. So you can learn to be a bigot. You can learn to be sexist. You can learn to be xenophobic. Kind. What's that? Kind. You can learn to be kind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but there's also these negative stuff. I mean, yeah. like when I used to travel a lot, I'd be in Dallas, let's say, and this happened to me all the time. I'd be running to catch my connecting flight to go home and I'm watching the plane pull away from the gate. Really? Oh, yeah. Happens all the time. So, um, Well, who are all those people that they're paging overhead? They never paged you? We don't use pagers anymore. Now we use the cell phone. It says, get get the hell on the plane. And you have two minutes. Now you have one minute. Now they're closing the doors. Goodbye. And so you play, and then you go up and you go to the, the counter and you go, you know, okay, give me the voucher, whatever you got. And they go, okay, we got a hotel. It's an hour away. All the hotels are filling up. There's a lot of canceled flights. So sorry about that. And uh, your flight in the morning is at six o'clock. So you're literally going to get three hours of sleep. And they send you out to a shuttle. You can't find out where it is. There's nobody around to ask. And the whole time, it's 11 o'clock at night. I just want to get home. And all I'm thinking is, I don't like you. What is that? Per- that person looks stupid. You should get out of my way. And so those kinds of negative things done repetitively, be careful about those. Monitor your thoughts. I'm 60 years old and I'm not self-actualized. I'm trying to monitor my thoughts a little bit. It's hard. It's hard work, but it's worthwhile. So anyway... If you talk to clinicians and you say, hey, you should have your your patients do lots of repetitions, the therapist inevitably will say, oh, yeah, I, I know that. I know I'm supposed to do a lot of repetition. You know what you could help me with, though? Uh, you and your ivory towers over there, wherever you're doing research, whatever the heck that is. How many repetitions? Like, how are we supposed to plan treatment if you guys that write all these articles don't tell us the number of repetitions we're supposed to do? And we used to do talks all the time, and we would really stumble on that question because we had data, but it came from people that moved really well. So who moves really well? Um, let's see. Blackjack dealers in Las Vegas. Thousands of repetitions per night, musicians, athletes, martial artists, dancers, and the numbers for those people get into the millions. Now, you're going to tell a therapist who works in skilled nursing, hey, you should have Mr. Smith do millions of repetitions. You know what that therapist will say sometimes not so politely? Do you know where we work? Have you ever been to a skilled nursing facility? I'm hoping I can get Mr. Smith to walk a few steps today, and you're talking about millions of repetitions. Why don't you go back to your ivory towers, wherever the heck you work, and come up with some, some number we can actually work with? Or I work in a you care. Now, my name is 
Deb Batted Stella and I work in acute care. I'm hoping I'm getting Mr. Smith to roll over this morning. Can you talk about some numbers we could actually deal with? So then we were saved and all of these articles are going to be in the show notes. And they tried to answer the question, how many repetitions would somebody with a brain injury have to do to get better? So first of all, you have to define a bunch of stuff. What is getting better actually mean? And they defined it in a couple of different ways. They said, first of all, we want to show more active range of motion wherever we're measuring it. And secondly, we want to show neuroplastic change in the brain. Because you can say, look, we got 15 more degrees of dorsiflexion. Isn't that amazing? And therapists, clinicians all over the world will collectively yawn. They don't care. But if you show that you change the brain, everybody gets very excited. Everybody wants the fMRI data. Everybody wants to see that you showed neuroplastic change. In fact, Eddie Taub, Ed Taub, PhD, Dr. Edward Taub complained about this. He said, when I showed people the data, they said, uh, who cares? But as soon as we started showing brain scanning images, they said, oh, now we get it. And it kind of, yeah. If a limb moves better, the brain has changed. Thank you. You're welcome. And that was his point. So anyway, so now we got to do both. Okay. I could hang out with him, maybe. You could. You should. Oh, love to. Yeah. Move to Alabama. Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay University with that. of Alabama, Birmingham. Great town, by the way. I'm ready. I'll go. Maybe after this, he'll invite us down. Probably. So you would think, now all this is done in stroke. And the reason it's done in stroke is that stroke has always been fascinating to, to scientists because it's one area and that one area then shows a particular deficit. In a way, it's a very basic way of scanning the brain because once you do the autopsy, even hundreds of years ago, you could see what was dead and then you remember what the deficit was. So it gives it a real good sense. You don't want to do a brain injury where there's multiple parts that have been killed. A coup contra coup where you hit your head against the, the dashboard and then the side window and you roll around for a few times. It's a mass hemorrhagic stroke. It's kind of all over the place. Gunshot wound, it tends to, you know, when those bullets go through the soft tissue of the brain, the brain has a consistency of jello. It opens up a conical shape thing. It's just, it's a, it's not good to do research on. So what they did was they looked at people that were stroke survivors, that one part of the brain that was dead, ischemic stroke survivor. And they tried to answer a few questions. So the first question was, look, what do we want to look at? Now, the biggest problem with people that have had a stroke, I think most clinicians would agree, is drop foot. And drop foot happens for a couple of reasons. First of all, it happens because the person's tibialis anterior, the small muscle that lifts the foot at the ankle, is uh, weak because of the stroke. Stroke affects muscles. Effect, uh, stroke disallows that portion of the brain to control those muscles so they can control it. They can't dorsiflex. But they also develop spasticity in the plantar flexors, which are the big gastroc and soleus, these big, powerful, your calf muscles. That's what they are. They're big calf muscles. And calf muscles are so strong that if you're young and healthy, one of those things will lift you off the planet. And that's up against the small little tibialis anterior, whose only job is to lift the foot at the ankle. So as soon as they're spastic, it's, it's a problem. But in clinical research, there's other problems with, with the lower extremity. As soon as you think about doing something in the lower extremity, you've got to answer this question. Do we include people that have had an ankle foot orthosis, an orthosis to hold that ankle up in order to allow them to dorsiflex? Or do we only include people that are AFO naive, that haven't worn it? Because as soon as you put an AFO on there, everything changes. The kinematics change, 
the strength of the muscles changes, the arthrokinematics change, gait changes, everything changes, and then there's neuroplastic change in the brain. So that's always something we grapple with in clinical research. Are we going to include people that have had something on their ankle or some people that haven't, or do we not care? So what they looked at to do these series of experiments to figure out how many repetitions somebody would have to do is they looked at the analog for dorsi and plantar flexion in the upper extremity, which I think you would agree is wrist extension and flexion. Okay. So you might think, well, why didn't they pick on something like upper body dressing or even walking? Because it's multiple joints and multiple planes. You're not trying to answer really complicated movements. You just want one joint. And then you can start to work on the more complicated stuff. So when they looked at wrist extension flexion, they came up with three basic numbers. The first number was 1,200. And I'll fill in what all these mean, 1,200. The second number was 30. And the third number was 300. So 1,200, 30, and 300. 1,200 was the average number of repetitions that a stroke survivor needed to do in order to get better. That is, the fMRI changed, that they had neuroplastic change, and they got more active range of motion out of the wrist. And they used kinematic, a big, um, you know, infrared cameras. They went to a kinematics lab to measure this stuff. They didn't do it with goniometers, which therapists never trust. It's reflective markers on all the pivots. And then there's these six infrared cameras around the room and they pick up um, the data in a very nuanced way. It looks like a stick figure. I'm sure you've seen these. So the way they did this was you can't do one repetition and then send them back to the fMRI and the kinematics because it'll take too much time. So what they do is they did in 400 increments. So they did the fMRI and the kinematics. They did 400 repetitions with Mr. Smith into wrist extension and flexion. And then they did the fMRI and kinematics and there was no change. So they added another 400. Now they're at 800, no change. They add another 400, 1200. They started to see the first changes in both kinematics and in the brain. Okay. 1200. Wow. Now that doesn't tell you anything about how much, how many repetitions would have to be done for somebody who's trying to upper body dress, because here are all the variables you'd have to figure out. We can't tell you the number for the person sitting in front of you. If you're a person with brain injury, we can't tell you the number. Here are some of the variables. How old is the guy? Where was the infarct? What's structures were taken. What was the size of the infarct? Was it multiple parts of the brain? What medications are they on? How motivated are they? Were they ever an athlete or a musician? It turns out athletes or musicians do repetitive practice with a passion that other people don't, believe it or not. Even if, they're, if they've ever been a high-level athlete or musician, they, they practice better. And then ultimately, how complicated is the movement that you're trying to relearn? Is it a single joint? Nothing's ever a single joint. Is it a multi-joint like upper body dressing or walking? It's going to be a lot more repetitions. And there's probably a thousand other things I'm not thinking about. So you can't figure out what the number is you know, based on that 1200 for more of, the, more of these complicated movements. I'm looking at these blog articles, and it says that the absolute minimum number of repetitions needed to drive cortical changes is 2,000. So that was from the Nudo article, right? Yes. Randolph Nudo? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was his best guess at the time. Okay. I'm not sure if he was working with humans now that I oh, think about it. Oh, okay. Um, but, but still, it's valuable. Still, I mean, if you think about it, 1,200, 2,000, that's not that far off. No, another 800. Like, what's that? Add another 800. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I, it's a third again as much. But let me ask you this. When was that article written? I don't know, because I have it from the blog article that I found. I think it's. I think it was in the early 2000s. I mean, Randolph Nudo, I think that's his first name, is is a guy who deserves a card, definitely. Okay. Um, he started a lot of this stuff. He's not the first to show neuroplastic change in animals. A guy by the name of Carl Lashley was, but that was a long time ago. But I, I think these numbers are going to continue to evolve. Okay.
So the second thing they did was they said, well, if we know the baseline is 1200, how many repetitions do therapists actually do? So what they did is they got grad students and they had grad students follow therapists around and they had them sign informed consent, which is this legal agreement that it's okay if we observe you and the stroke survivor, it's okay if we observe you. But they didn't tell them what they were going to observe because if you tell people that you're going to observe repetitive practice, the numbers will go haywire. So they just said, we'll tell you afterwards, but we're just going to observe the, the treatment. Okay. What they found was that the average number of repetitions per hour was 30. So it was about 25 an hour. And it per hour. Yeah. And this is any kind of repetitive movement. So in the upper extremity, it was about 25. In the lower extremity, it was about 35. It could be a lot higher in the lower extremity because, as we mentioned before, walking brings in a lot of these bleeding edge concepts that come straight out of neuroscience. It's bilateral. There's a bilateral training component. There's BDNF that comes out. Um, It's repetitive. It's task specific. It's challenging. It's meaningful but it clearly is repetitive. The problem with walking though, the number of repetitions that you can do has to do with how much strength the guy has. If he's taking 50 strides, 25 are on the left, the, the stronger side, and 25 are on the right. So you're only getting half as much repetitions, but ultimately the guy could be exhausted at 50 steps. It's not uncommon. So you have that little problem. You do have that little problem. So there's the deficit. Yeah. The, the, the least amount we think that you need to do is 1,200 in a single joint, and yet the numbers are about 30. It's really something. Yeah, it's not good news, but I do have some good news. You do? The next thing they did, <laughs> you Yay. do? Okay. I'm going to try to keep you awake. Sorry, this is kind of preaching. No, it's a, I live in the country, Pete, and bugs get in my house. So oh, yeah, we don't, we don't have bugs in Cincinnati. They're all dead <laughs> from the pollution oh, from years of industrial waste. Okay. So, um, yeah, so here's the good news. The next thing they did was they hired a bunch of per diem therapists. We often hire per diem therapists. In fact, if you are a therapist, you want to get involved in clinical research, go in per diem first. Find a local lab that's working on something cool and say, I want to come in, you know, do some research. Do you need any help per diem kinds of stuff? I got my first job. It was not per diem. I was hired full time, but usually the people that we hired came in per diem first and they said, okay, um, here's what we want you to do. We just want you to work with Mr. Smith and four of his stroke survivor friends for the next three months and go in to that well-stocked gym. And you're only going to focus on one thing, repetition. We just want to see how many repetitions you can possibly vector in per hour if that's all you focus on. And the numbers got crazy high very quickly in the two to 400 range. So the average was about 300. Per so- hour. A lot of therapists, when they hear 300 repetitions, they go, you got to be kidding me. Mr. Smith isn't motivated and I can't do it. And there's a million things in the way and I'm very busy and I got notes to write and I can't do it. I can't. This is why you do clinical research. They hired per diem therapists. So these were real therapists working with real chronic stroke survivors. And they were able to hit these high numbers if that was the focus of their treatment. So it sounds like that could be the focus of a treatment session. Yes. But let me just ask you as a clinician, what's kind of like rolling around in your brain as something that may get in the way of you being able to do that kind of stuff? Well, number of people you're working with at any given point in time, fatigue factor of the person, yeah. um, cognition, you know, their understanding. Plus, if I don't know this, my own beliefs are going to get in the way. And in kind of what I mentioned at the beginning of this episode with clinicians, it sounds like we have fear around harm, causing more harm. And so that's why we need clear guidelines. And I think that will help us. 
Those are all really good reasons. Fatigue, you know, whether the person even understands why you're working them like a horse, delayed onset muscle soreness, are you going to cause them harm? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess the advantage was that they were chronic stroke survivors. And that's really when you can start, I would say it starts in subacute, but you can really start to treat them like low-level athletes playing a higher stakes game. Yes. I do think that clarifying when people can start becoming more intensive with a survivor should help therapists feel better about that and and have more confidence in being able to push the person. And and some people in that subacute phase, they're ready. You know, not everybody has a massive stroke that's affects their cognition and you know, their fatigue level as much. I mean, I know that people are tired usually following a stroke. So, oh, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say to to follow up with what you said, everything a stroke survivor does, and I know this is true in stroke, and I'm sure it's true in other forms of acquired brain injury. Everything they do takes twice as much energy. When they look at upper body dressing, when they look at walking, when they look at cooking, whatever it is, eating, whatever they're trying to do, it takes them twice as much energy. But then when they measure the amount of cardiovascular strength they have, because that's compromised because of the stroke Mm -hmm. and because of the brain injury and the amount of muscular strength that they have on the more affected side, um, they have half as much. So let's review. Everything takes twice as much energy, but they have half as much energy. The number one complaint among stroke survivors, at least, is fatigue. So these people who participated in the studies, the repetition studies, did their did this change their fatigue levels like as they as they improved? Understand that this was done over an arc of about a week. Oh. So it I don't think they had a lot of follow-up after it. They were trying to answer a very simple question. How many repetitions before we see those two markers change? One, more active range of motion, two, neuroplastic change in the brain. Anybody who's interested, it's gonna be in the show notes and you can look through the numbers and they'll it's all laid out there. It's very simple to read and get a sense of what they did and answer those kinds of questions. Like, what did they do when they had people that had fatigue in the middle of the treatment or in the middle of the experiment? They may have had people that dropped out. Yeah, true. We encourage people to read research. I think one of the the podcasts we should do is how to access research because there's some really good free resources that you can use. And there's ways to look at research. I do it all the time. I mean, I don't read a whole research article. I just rip out what I need. And then it's kind of there. Yes. So when we're looking at these 400 increments and we get up to 1200 and that's for change. And I'm assuming that the functional change or the active, the amount of range of motion change is different for each person. So you get that change, right? You do those you do those repetitions, you get that little bit of change, but you don't really stop there because you have to keep doing that over and over and over again until you get full range of motion back. That would be the idea. Yeah. Now, the other thing though is that was basic repetitive practice and they they had a few tools that they could do to get Mr. Smith to do more wrist flexion and extension wasn't very interesting. But as we talked about last time, salience is really important. So it's not just repetitions of single joints, although that might be part of it with regard to part whole practice that we talked about last podcast, taking the entire movement, breaking it down to component parts, practicing the component parts, then putting it back together for the whole movement. But for the most part, as soon as you can, you're integrating those limbs into real world functional kinds of things. 
Yeah. I think that sometimes when people hear all those steps, like in the last episode when you were talking about it has to be interesting and meaningful, and then there has to be all of this practice, distributed practice, mass practice, skill specificity, the part whole practice, and then transfer yeah. of skill. It sounds very overwhelming, but it's nat- it is what we naturally do as therapists. Can I go further and say it's what we naturally do as human beings when we're trying to motor learn? Well, that too. I mean, Kathy knew this stuff. She has a psychology background, which a lot of this is psychology. Talking about Kathy Spencer. Kathy uh, Spencer. From a couple of um, super survivor, Kathy Spencer from a couple of podcasts ago. Yeah, I remember her. Yeah. I'm assuming everyone's all caught up here with that episode. Yeah. <laughs> I talk about all these people like I know them. Ed, Kathy, Pete. Posters behind us. like. <laughs> I know. Holograms. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is it, it is a natural thing. But when you start hearing all of these these words thrown around, it, it can sound overwhelming. Oh, I could never do that. But the fact is, you can't. We, we all can. It's very natural. Watching kids and as they go through skill acquisition, it's such a joy of learning. And they really tell us how it should be done. Yeah, they do. They just keep trying over and over and over again. Yeah, they don't They don't care. And yeah, there's going to be some skin knees and there's going to be some problems, but there's also going to be great joy. The great joy of movement, yeah. learning. Well... There's some meaning brought into this again with a repetitive practice in one of the articles. I have two really good articles. Um, one is factors influencing the delivery of intensive rehabilitation in stroke. And it looks at patient perceptions and the therapist perceptions, which is fascinating. And that might bring in a little bit of the anthropology part of me. Oh, good. I've been waiting for that. I know you have. Come on, let it out. No, there's so much good stuff. They looked at why the implementation of intensive task specific practice and aerobic exercise in stroke rehab is hard for therapists to implement. And it was a semi-structured interview that, that they used, which was helpful because it shows the therapist perceptions and the patient perceptions in different categories. But ultimately, the conclusions are that people with stroke perceive no barriers regarding implementing higher intensity rehab, and they had a positive outlook towards working at more intense levels. But the therapist's beliefs about quality of movement and issues around staffing and resources were perceived to be barriers. And I, I, I love this article because I think, too, therapists get nervous about safety. Is it safe from a health perspective for survivors? And so they did use the graded exercise test to make sure that there were no cardio problems. And then they monitored um, clients' heart rates as they participated in the intense rehab. So let me ask you a couple questions about that. When was the article written? This is 2019 American Physical Therapy Association, APTA. Uh, Okay. The APTA, I've heard of them. Yeah. Have you? Let me me ask you this. So it was a questionnaire and they they gave questionnaires to both stroke survivors and then also to therapists. Mm -hmm. And they found, I'm just reiterating what you just said, but I found this find this actually both surprising 
and yet somehow expected that yeah. the therapists were on the more conservative side and the, the stroke survivors were like, I want more. I think I need more. Let's do more. Yes. Hmm. That's crazy. That's crazy sauce. That's what, the way my kids would say it. It's crazy sauce. <laughs> it is crazy sauce, but it's not that crazy because as a therapist, as a clinician working in critical care units, sometimes working in acute care and sometimes working in the inpatient rehab, I know the stroke center that I worked at, people in the inpatient rehab sometimes were still pretty ill. and um, They're pretty what? They were still sick. Like they were still, oh, the patients you know, were. yeah, the patients were. Oh. Uh, probably maybe some of the therapists too. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know if you were talking about the patient. Okay, that makes sense. So they were pretty, yeah. still pretty, it wasn't the therapists that were ill. Okay. And yeah. they're still pretty ill. And so how much could they do? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, may I ask, did the article talk about the patient population that both the therapists and the stroke survivors were in? Yeah, it did. And these, let me just make sure. So we have ages 44 to 61, or no, 64. And then they did address comorbidities in here as well. And so these were generally healthy people before they had the stroke. So relatively so, young stroke survivors, mm -hmm. they didn't have a lot of comorbidities, which are things that are not related to the stroke necessarily. Things like, well, diabetes, you could argue whether that's, but something unrelated, a hip replacement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. As opposed to sequelae, which are things that come from the stroke. Comorbidities are different diseases that are outside the stroke. Okay. And they were relatively young, relatively healthy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And there were just some really good things. Um, they but, looked so self-efficacy yeah. of the therapist and self-efficacy of the patient. As a result of participating in this study, therapists gained confidence to push people harder. And it was generally due to that graded exercise test. It gave therapists more confidence that the patients were able to, from a health standpoint, work harder. And then the fact that they used heart rate monitors and step counters as objective measures. It was inpatient rehab because they talked and hear about how the study participants made quicker progress. They they noticed themselves compared to people who didn't participate in the study and saw it as a benefit and they felt bad for the people who chose not to participate because they didn't make as quick progress. But we don't know what are the reasons those other people didn't participate. Maybe their stroke had more of a, a negative impact on their function and you know, who knows. Of course, do you happen to know if there was a control group? Because there may have been a group that wanted to do it but weren't involved i don't see a control group maybe they didn't here. need one because it was all questionnaire therapists were encouraged to do more by the study itself once they were given the tools to adequately monitor the health of the stroke survivor while they were doing the exercise things like heart monitors and then this mm -hmm. i just wrote down get graded exercise something test test it's graded it's exercise. yeah the get or the gxt because i did look it up <laughs> oh okay and it's really just to rule out coronary artery disease and or abnormal rhythms hmm that is so much interesting stuff. Oh, there's so much interesting stuff in here. They looked at individual stage of change for the therapist. Most individuals were in the preparation or contemplation stage of change. Some recognized their practice had already changed. Others felt they would step back to their everyday clinical practice. So this is important and not to be hard on therapists, but I, I think that there is this part of us as practitioners that for some reason or other is challenging for us to step outside 
outside of these normal, normal or typical ways that we've been practicing that are not necessarily evidence-based. Yeah. So imagine if a study is so impactful that it changes the way that therapists look at stuff in real time. I mean, these therapists were affected by the study itself as the study was going on and they were able to ask them questions about it. Yeah. Knowledge is power. There you go. It is. They mentioned that the research protocol needs to be adaptable for clinical reality. So, for example, more focus on upper limb education for some patients. Therapists thought pre-gate activities were essential, though recognized doing this first may reduce intensity. So, that's a question. Like, do p- How much from study protocol can people deviate in creating a protocol that works for their clinic or their rehab setting? I, I just keep thinking about taking the research and applying it to your everyday practice. And I know we've done that where I've worked before, and we just gather up all the articles that we can find mm. and review what the protocol is. You have but like a study group. Was it like during lunch or something? How'd you do it? We did it before work started. And we would just meet every so often, look at the literature. And this was for the constraint-induced therapy um, program that we put together. But essentially, we did the same thing for the early mobility program. We just looked at the literature and the therapy people who were involved in putting that together. We came up with something that we we knew could be implemented. So, but just based on that, it sounds like there is there's, there's always questions. People have questions and they are not sure what to do with that information and and how do they it's like that's where they get stuck in taking the information from a study and being able to create a protocol another part that's important in this article relates to leadership engagement being recognized as important to support the resources that are required to start a protocol so you need the boss boss lady to agree to to implement it. You really do. And support it and buy the equipment and all the yeah. and everything. Yeah. And, and I think that sounds like it's challenging during these times anyway, because a lot of facilities are understaffed. They're stressed out due to the, the different protocols that they have to implement right now. And so maybe starting something new is too much mm, right now. Yeah. It is interesting. So US News and World Report puts out the best hospitals in nephrology and the best in cardiovascular care and the best in orthopedics and the best in brain surgery. And they also do it for rehabilitation hospitals. And all the rehabilitation hospitals that are at the top, things like, uh, you know, Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago or whatever, Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, I guess they call it now, uh, Kessler Institute, TIRR down in Texas, uh, Rancho in California, all these big ones, they all have research entities. I mean, at Kessler, we had 100 people that were just doing research. So it was smooth. The transition from finding out something works in spinal cord right to the rehab hospital was smoothed by the fact that we were right down the hall and they were in our lab and it was just a lot more mixed. That does make it easier because when you're reading this black and white paper and half the time they don't really, there's little, you know, in peer review journal articles, you can't even have color pictures. They have to be black and white. What kind of nonsense is that? When you know darn well, if they would just put a video of this stuff, everybody would get it. Sounds like a rabbit hole we could go down. Yeah, if we're talking about if we're talking about implementation though, mm-hmm. that's that you, you have a good point. I mean, here's a bunch of therapists, they come in in the morning before anybody gets there to do extra work to read these articles together. And they're like, you know, how how are we gonna do this? And will the boss lady agree with it? It's well, like it is hard. And then COVID on top of it. Yeah, it is hard. And I feel like I better not say anything. 
I've experienced both. You know, I've experienced leadership that's on board with starting new things. I've been part of starting new things. And then I've also experienced the resistance to some of that. And it's it's frustrating from a therapist perspective, especially because you, you know that there's more and different that you sh- can and should be doing. Yeah, it is tough. Yeah. It is tough. And there's no doubt about it. You know, if you, if you have an oncologist, right? And the oncologist says to you, you know, um, I- I've got bad news. And I've got good news. So the bad news is you have cancer. You know, oh my God, I have cancer. What? What are you talking about? Well, what's the good news? Well, I got this thing and it works in my patients. You go, oh, well, that's good. Well, will I be cured? Well, you know, we, we really don't count that. We, we we're not sure. Well, wait, wait. You, you say it works in your patients. Does it work in all patients or is it just your patients? Or what's, what's going on? What's the best? You know, I don't know if it's the best. We haven't really compared it to other stuff, but it, you know, it works. Yeah, it works pretty well. That doesn't happen in oncology because people die of cancer all the time. People don't die of bad rehab. So the lag time between bench side, what researchers come up with and understand these are clinical researchers, so they're often therapists. And what's implemented clinically can be 15 or 20 years. It's not oncology. Common. If Sloan Kettering comes up with a new way to do a lumpectomy in breast cancer, the next week it goes into play in every other place that claims that it's an oncology center. So nobody buys dies of bad therapy, and and so there's this lag time. It's unfortunate in, in rehab. We should do a better job of that. I think that's the way to look at it. Yeah, it is unfortunate. There's another um, statement that I or some piece of information that I want to share on the self-efficacy piece for the patients. It says that they tended to be able to work hard and work out routines and support strategies that worked for them. Under yeah. the care of a therapist. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just, I really loved this article. Journal of uh, Physical Therapy. Yep. It's a good one. We need to get a couple from AJOT. I know. American Journal of Occupational Therapy. Maybe we'll do that for next time. Yeah. The other article that I liked is called Combined Aerobic Exercise and Task Practice Improve Health-Related Quality of Life Post-Stroke. And this again used, uh, well, they used the Stroke Impact Scale and the, the Center for Epidemiological Studies Depression Scale. Forced exercise plus repetitive task practice. They had voluntary exercise and repetitive task practice or stroke education and repetitive task practice. And guess which group did not make the same improvements? The one that didn't have the exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's what's the hypothesis there, you think? What, what are you thinking that was the reason? Because I have an idea, but I don't know. Wait, what did you just say? <laughs> what's, what, um, why didn't, why did the two exercise groups get better? And why didn't the one that has exercise get better with the repetitive practice part? Of- well, I think it has to do with um, all of the reasons why the aerobic exercise helps the brain to change. So it makes sense to me. Is that what you're thinking? That is. I mean, it yeah. comes back to our old friend, um, brain-derived neurotropic factor that, you know, with as little as three minutes of relatively intensive cardio training, the brain is pumped full of these neurotropic factors that help learning. And we learned from the last podcast that motor learning is learning. So it really sets them up. Um, I know this is kind of in the weeds, but was there a difference between the forced exercise group and the voluntary exercise? I wonder how they force people (laughs) really. (laughs) So no, both of the, the 
forced exercise and the, when I say that other one was, the heck, they use all these initials in here. It's the VE group, whatever that is. They dem- oh yeah, voluntary, thanks. They demonstrated significant improvements in strength, mobility, hand function, activities of daily living, and the physical composite. In addition, the forced exercise group demonstrated significant improvement in memory, cognitive composite, and percent recovery from stroke. So the whole memory piece, the, or I'm sorry, yeah, and the cognition. And then this one looked at depression as well. And they suggested that people had, to, they talk about social isolation that occurs following stroke. And the people who participated in the study went to a center to participate. And they made sure that everybody got the same amount of of time with each other and therapists. Mm -hmm. And they did attribute improvements um, in the depression to that. But they didn't account for it when they started the study. Like that wasn't something that they... um, Well, no, I'm, I'm lying. The depression was something that they looked at. It was the cognition that they didn't plan for. Uh-huh. And so the people that got out and about and were social, as well as all the other stuff, the exercise they were doing, yeah. those people were less depressed. Imagine that. Yeah. Exercise also, even in people with dementia and Alzheimer's, it will increase uh, the number of synaptic connections and the blood vessels in the hippocampus where short-term memories are stored. So it's no surprise that they did better in terms of the memory tests. Right. It's crazy, man. It all revolves around rehab. It's- I think therapy maybe don't know the power that they have. I don't think they do. So how do we empower them? I think we hit on a couple of big ones. First of all, sit down with the boss lady and say, listen, we need to have a talk about getting clinical research in here so that we can use better tools. All we got is this hammer and this wrench, but what about the stuff that doesn't involve those? Yeah. And um, look, we can have better outcomes. And I bet we can prove better outcomes by doing some basic tests. So then we get to advertise. It's an advertising tool. Come on, everybody. We can do this. What's your ideas? Well, those are my ideas. And I, I get a little puzzled at times when we're thinking about outcomes. I don't understand who the decision makers are all of the time. I don't understand. I think there are some gaps. You don't think it's Affleck and United Healthcare and you know Medicare, Medicaid, and yep, that too. Yeah, you get pencil pushers making the decisions. Yes. Um. Yeah, it's tough. It, it is, is tough. tough. And I so I participated in some of those meetings where I was the only rehab person, and <laughs> I learned a lot. Pete, it's all about the dollars. Yeah, it is. They got shareholders to pay. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, it's it's it can be discouraging for therapists, and I'm sure it's discouraging for the people who require the services of the facility. But I think I think that some of these things that we're talking about don't require massive change. You can do this as a therapist. You can do some, it doesn't matter even what the aerobic activity is. So what is a person capable of doing? I mean, maybe it is sit to stand a whole bunch of times just to get that heart rate going and then do the repetitive task practice. You are absolutely right about that. I agree with that. I mean, let's say you have a therapist, an OT, and they're working on the three jaw chuck or some other complicated movement. Who who the heck knows what OTs work on? The hook grasp, the spherical grasp, the cylindrical grasp, the 18,000 grasp they're working on, whatever. You know, the homunculus, the point-to-point representation of the brain for the hand is ginormous. It takes up half the brain up there. I mean, if you 
engage the hands, you really have engaged the brain. But imagine if the PT, prior to giving them over to the OT, or I don't know if you can get paid for it, but co-treating, and you get them on a treadmill and you have them walk for a while, you do sit to stand or whatever, and then you send them to the OT or the speech therapist. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine all that stuff that they have to do with the mouth and, and speech. You pump the brain full of BDNF, and then you do the difficult repetitive practice. We just solved it right there. Thank you. It's all about scheduling, folks. That's right. So maybe we should bring into this a little bit the quality of movement because that has come up for us several times and we know that there are some clinicians who think that the quality is more important than just the attempt to move. So can you speak to that a little bit? If we get into the question of quality of movement, I know therapists are are really quite um, obsessed with this. And I think it's it doesn't work in this context any more than, you know, giving a child that's learning to walk a couple of AFOs and a rolling walker. It's just not about quality in the short term. So what happens is they do a movement, the person who's had a brain injury, and it's random, it's accidental, it's something that the therapist suggests. And then the therapist immediately reinforces, oh, that's new shoulder movement. We should work on that. I think we can build on this. And you're very sort of a lot of positive reinforcement about that movement, no matter how slight, no matter how sloppy, no matter how ugly, you reinforce it. Because the other message is the more you move, the worse you'll get. And that's not a good message, right? For people that are trying to motor learn. Okay. So then once they have the movement, they do a ton of demanding repetitions, chipping away at their present active ranges of motion, just trying to get it better and better, better quality, better trajectory more speed, whatever it is that you want to work on. And look, what we all want at the end of the day is better quality, fluid, coordinated movement. But sometimes we don't get there. And I would suggest to therapists, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. We're not trying to make them perfect. We're just trying to get them better. And better is good. So forget about perfection. It's not about perfection. It's about better. Just focus on treating them like a low-level athlete. I love that. A few years ago, I got invited to a robotics lab that was attached to MIT, and it was absolutely amazing. I think they thought that I was going to help sell their it was robots for rehab. And uh, so they invite me up there. I was up there with this crazy guy who drove really badly. But anyways, long story, I was in Boston and um, they brought me into this lab. It was amazing. It was it was ginormous. And it was a lot of engineers working on these robots for rehab. And one of the things that they had was this virtual reality thing. And it's not so weird anymore, but back in the day, it was kind of interesting. And they would have the forearm troughed and then against the screen, they would try to cut. So it was like playing playing a video game, but with a hemipredic arm. And they would have them hold this lever that then they would cut pizza with or engage with characters or whatever it was. And, you know, with people that are hemipredic, often what happens is no matter what they try to do to get their arm in front of the body, there's internal sh- uh, rotation at the shoulder. Um, how can I get describe this to somebody who can't see this? So it's like uh, stabbing yourself with a knife into the heart. That's the hemipredic part. The shoulder is internal rotated. The elbow is flexed. The forearm is pronated. Usually the fingers are flexed. The wrist is flexed. Okay. And so what they found was that if you help the people in the correct trajectory, the robot didn't work very well. They It was able to vector in a lot of repetitions, but there wasn't much neuroplastic change. But if you made the person with the stroke do the movement worse, the stroke survivor would then try to overcorrect. And when she took the robot away, they were better. It was an over challenge. So 
as they move forward, it would force them even further towards their chest. And now they'd have to fight against it. And it's like an over challenge. It's like the, the old thing about like you wear weights on your ankles to make your legs stronger. Yeah. Once you take the ankles, the weights off, you, you feel better. So sometimes the beauty is not in the beauty, but in the ugliness of the movement. Let it be ugly. Let it be sweaty. Look, if you don't think that this has value, here's what you need to do. Go to a music store and get yourself a viola. And let me know how that doesn't sound like a dozen dying cats for the next six months. Because it's gonna. Take up golf. It's gonna be. It's not supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be ugly. You gotta enjoy this stuff. The joy of learning to move. Yeah. Um. I have to pull up this motor learning and remyelination article. I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, this is June 2020, and basically they found out that oligodendrocyte loss in neurological disease leaves axons vulnerable to damage and degeneration, and activity-dependent myelination actually can help improve remyelination following injury. So they said that precisely timed motor learning improves recovery from that demyelinating injury, you know, just through the motor learning, promoting growth of neurons. Let's let's just define what myelin is. So it's this sheath that wraps around the axon of the neuron and it allows the the impulse to go from one end of the neuron to the other end of the neuron so that it can communicate with a new neuron much faster. If you have a demyelinating disease, it's not a good thing because everything slows down. And in fact, the neurons can die, I think. So yeah. So they're saying that you can remyelinate by exercise. Is that what they were saying? Sounds like it, doesn't it? That's crazy sauce. We got I more mean, crazy is motor, sauce. Is motor learning exercise? Well, I think you, yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be? Yeah. I mean, if I play drums, that's motor learning. It sure is. Oh, sorry. That's cognitive. Motor learning. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> motor <laughs> cognition. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I think that's pretty cool. That's very cool. I think there's a whole lot more going on than what we know. You think? We'll keep, we'll keep finding it out more and more with people like you doing the research. years, we'll have it all figured out. <laughs> Will we? Well, anyway, Deb. Yeah. I had a ball as usual. Oh, this was great. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see you guys soon or talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.